Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, you got to listen in every Tuesday to stay up to date on the most recent medication therapy topics. Game Changers creates awareness about pharmacotherapy and clinical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy practice. Every Tuesday, a new episode of Game Changers is published on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. And always remember, the pharmacist is the hub of healthcare. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University, and happy to be your host for another hopefully 20, 25 minutes of something that uh, information that you can use in your practice and and, and deploy immediately and, and as this thinks is, 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 is a good uh, entrance into patient care and helping you perform patient care as well. So uh, as always, before we get started, want to uh, thank CE Impact, the sponsor of this podcast. And, and, and ask you to please go to CE Impact and their website and, and, and uh, look at the numerous great uh, packages they have for CE there. Um, this is uh, also this pro- program. So if, if you're listening to the podcast and you want to sign up with them, they actually have some great packages where just for listening to my voice, going onto their uh, website and answering a question, you get a, 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 a period of CE. And that's going to add up, I think, really, really quick for people who are just listening on their commutes and things along those lines. Also, go, go to wherever you like your podcast. And, and, and like us and, and, and spread the word, let everybody know what's going on and, and, and uh, we can get more and more people involved. So, so today we are going to be talking about the new ACE guidelines for osteoporosis. Um, again, trying to studiously avoid anything having to do with COVID for another week. I'm, I, think, I think we're doing a pretty good job. Uh, uh, so these actually came out, uh, and of course with all the noise with COVID going out, they, they actually came out kind of uh, under the radar, so to, so to speak. I think this was not something that was on a lot of people's radars. And of course, like so many endocrinology uh, uh, topics, because there's, you know, it, what seems like a million different endocrinology societies out there, and they all have kind of their own set of guidelines. And those of you who work in diabetes, you know, you know, which set of guidelines do you follow? Uh, um, traditionally, uh, the, the the two big groups that have come out with osteoporosis guidelines have been the National Osteoporosis Foundation, and again, ACE, the American Association of, of Clinical Endocrinology. Um, th- they kind of switch off, and so I think it's now their turn, ACE's turn to do it. And so that's kind of where we're at now. And there are some big changes. And the reason there are some big changes in these set of guidelines is because uh, we now have a couple of new drugs and kind of a new way to approach treating osteoporosis, which is anabolic treatment, which is basically building bone mass up. As you all know, you know, most of the treatments we have for osteoporosis, you know, currently uh, really just prevent more bone loss, but they don't actually cause bone mass increase. And so this is kind of cool. Uh, now there's some some big caveats of that kind of cool piece, but we're definitely going to go through that as we go along. So it, as an inpatient pharmacist, I'll tell you that, you know, it's not that I forget about osteoporosis, but yeah, I sometimes kind of forget about osteoporosis, and it, but it's a huge problem, right? You know, uh, the National Osteoporosis Foundation estimates that about 10 million Americans have osteoporosis and that another 43 million elders have low bone mass. And they also estimate that about 2 million osteoporotic-related fractures occur annually in the U.S., most of those in women. Medicare plays for a huge share of those costs, and in fact, they're estimated to be more than $25 billion. And so we spend a ton of money on osteoporotic fractures. Um, and 
despite these costs, in spite, I think, you know, what has been a, 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 a uh, ramp up in, in the awareness and, and the treatment of osteoporosis, uh, we still see about, uh, uh, about one in four women uh, who, uh, less than one in four women, actually get their bone marrow, uh, bone marrow density measured or begin osteoporotic treatment. So it's, it's, a, it's a treatment that is probably vastly underused and, and, uh, and, and, under di- and a treatment that's underdiagnosed. Um, but again, only a small percentage uh, seem to be treated. There's some reasons for that. Uh, the big one, of course, is, you know, what will insurances pay? You know, um, the, the other piece I think a lot of it has to do with is, is you know, like so many other diseases that don't, they don't have symptoms associated with it. It's really easy, I think, for a lot of patients for osteoporosis to kind of fall to the bottom of their bucket of diseases when they've got diabetes and hypertension and high blood uh, 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 hyperlipidemia and maybe coronary disease and all the other things we all tend to get as we get older. You know, osteoporosis is, is, is important, but it seems to kind of fall by the wayside. So this uh, uh, set of guidelines, and again, this, these set of guidelines were, were just recently published in the last like two and a half months, and uh, they, they, they're pretty comprehensive, and, and certainly if you'd like to, to, to go, then we have a link to the, to the uh, uh, paper that was published in, in, in endocrinology practice. Um, and it's it's a very thorough document. We won't have time, obviously, to go through all the pieces of it. But I think many of the listeners are are well aware of what the diagnosis of of, of osteoporosis entails and using DEXA scans and things along those lines. So what I really wanted to do for this uh, podcast is talk a little bit about some of the changes because there were two or three big big changes uh, between this, these 2020 guidelines from ACE and the last set of guidelines that came out a few years ago from the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Now these these guidelines were set up pretty much the same way all modern uh, clinical practice guidelines are. They uh, they did a PICO format where they basically took a group of experts in the world of, of osteoporosis. They got them all together. They pulled all the literature to answer specific questions having to do with osteoporosis diagnosis and treatment. And then they reviewed that literature and made the recommendation and then Using the grade system, they graded uh, you know the level of evidence they had to to to, to make this recommendation. So a grade A uh, uh, recommendation is something that is supported by randomized control trials, usually multiple randomized control trials, where lower grades are going to be either you know not as good, well done randomized studies or retrospective studies, or and then you get way down to the bottom where they have really no data and they just say it's expert opinion. We're just we're just basically making this opinion based on on our expertise as as people. Who deal with osteoporosis all the time, so, so you know that's how the guidelines are set up. And again, that's that's not that 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 big of a deal or big of a change from most other guidelines. What I want to focus then on are, are are two or three things that 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 they really they really do talk about now. Before we get into the changes, the the one key theme that the uh, ACE guidelines have, that the National Osteoporosis Foundation guidelines had before it, was to remember to use the FRAX tool, right? The F-R-A-X tool, which is free for the using on on the internet and um, has been shown in multiple studies to uh, uh, be a very powerful tool to assess fracture risk, not only for you, but for the the patient or the patient's family. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a terrific tool. I know my physicians, my, my internists on an outpatient basis use it quite a bit. And sometimes I think we forget about, you know, anybody can access this and there's even a way to use FRAX without uh, having a DEXA information. So it's not as accurate, but you can uh, use FRAX without uh, um the, the DEXA information and still gives you a reasonable estimate of, of lifelong risk of osteoporotic fracture. So 
the guidelines reiterate the fact that that the FRAX tool, which is it has been uh, um, validated in multiple studies, and and actually you can validate it for individual countries. So like if you're listening to my voice in the United States, uh, there is a, a a U.S. version of FRAX. If you're in another country, there's most other uh, countries' versions of FRAX as well. So so you know in patients at risk, you know use the FRAX tool, and that I think it can not only help you uh, make decisions about treatment or recommend uh, treatment decisions, but you can also use it as an educational tool of a patient who might not be all that interested in taking a bisphosphonate, given all the difficulties in taking a bisphosphonate, might be more interested in doing so if she were to learn that her 10-year risk of, uh, of hip fracture is 10%. You know, that, that might be enough to make it worth, worth her for doing it. The other baseline thing that hasn't changed a whole lot is, is, is the, the need to maintain good vitamin D levels. Um, this hasn't changed in, in, in several years, but, but in, you know, they point out the fact that in osteopenia or osteoporosis, that we should try to maintain 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels at greater than 30. So, and in fact, they actually say in, in the in the uh, uh, text that they'd actually prefer closer to 50. Um, again, that can be difficult to do in patients, especially patients don't get outside much or don't have a lot of dairy uh, intake in their diet. So, those are some other things that that I think that that pharmacists can be uh, you know quite good at is is you know making uh, trying to assess vitamin D intake and making sure that that they're getting a vitamin D, especially if you know they have osteoporosis or osteopenia. As we discussed in a previous Game Changer, what seems like a million years ago, because we were talking about vitamin D and COVID, remember that it is pretty difficult to, to, uh, to uh, um, uh, uh, cause toxicity. So as long as they're not taking a whole handful of stuff every day, if they're taking you know, reasonable doses of you know, 400 to 800 IUs a day, that is, that is reasonable. If they need to take more to get that level above 30, that's certainly reasonable as well. There has been some very recent data that suggests that mega doses of vitamin D in patients without osteoporosis may not be good, uh, but that that paper has not been fully published yet. So I, I think at, at a minimum, what I would say is that that you know nobody should be taking handfuls of vitamin D for any reason. I don't think, but uh, certainly in, in in patients with osteoporosis, maintaining that vitamin D level is pretty important. And then they maintain. They also talk about the importance of using DEXA scores, you know, as and and helping to not only calculate fracs, but also to 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 do kind of a screening to see how things are going with treatment. And that's kind of uh, important with some of the new treatments we're talking about because. One of the uh, the big changes in these guidelines from previous guidelines is they've come up with a new category of risk. So, previous set of guidelines for osteoporosis just were low, moderate, and high risk. Now there is a very high risk category uh, for patients with osteoporosis, and this category was pretty much developed primarily because these are the patients who would probably be candidates for the anabolic agents that we're going to be talking about in a little bit, uh, because these are the drugs that actually will will build bone mass in these patients. So, uh, so you may ask, okay, well, what is a very high uh, risk osteopor osteoporosis patient? That is someone who's had an osteoporotic fracture within the last year. That's someone who's had uh, fractures while on on osteoporosis therapy, someone who's had multiple fractures, uh, osteoporotic fractures, and then uh, patients who had fractures on drugs that, that can cause skeletal harm. And probably the big one that we all think about is corticosteroids. So if you had someone who'd been on long-term corticosteroids and they were having fractures on it, they would be considered very high risk. And then anyone who has a very, very low DEXA score, T-score, so if their T-score was less than uh, negative three, uh, they, would, they, would, they would be also considered very high risk. So, uh, you know, these are people I think 
we would all agree, you know, if you've already had a history of osteoporotic fractures, you're, you're obviously going to, to, to be likely to get them in the future. If you've had multiple fractures, if you've been on steroids and your, your, your DEXA score shows your bone mass is very, very low, it stands to reason that all those patients would be very high risk. And so the guidelines come right out, and this is a grade A recommendation saying that, 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 that very high risk patients should be aggressively treated. And what they would recommend is that if at all possible, uh, um, anabolic agents for at least a year, depending or two, depending on, on the drug you're picking, should be selected first up. And then afterwards, uh, uh, um, the bone mass that was built should be consolidated with either bisphosphonates or denosinab. So the vi- very high-risk patients should be, uh, again, aggressively treated. They, they call out um, abloperatide, uh, which is one of the new uh, um, uh, anabolic agents and romosuzumab. And yes, I had to practice saying that a couple of times. Um, I, I don't know where we're eventually going to get to the point where monoclonal antibodies are, are so tongue twisting. Nobody can, can say them. They're just going to say, yeah, that red one, but uh, <laughs> abloperatide and romosuzumab are the, are the two uh, anabolic agents that have recently been approved by the FDA. And we'll talk a little bit about both those. They do say if patients can't tolerate them or they can't afford them, then denosinab or teraparatide can be considered. And then also, uh, zoldronic acid, which is a, a bisphosphonate, but is a potent intravenous uh, um, a bisphosphonate that's only given once a year, can all be recommended. But the the, the, the text does call out that 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 uh, anabolic agents are preferentially used. If they don't, if they aren't in the very high risk, they do not recommend the anabolic agents. They recommend uh, the traditional oral bisphosphonates or denosumab. Either they, either of them are reasonable. Um, after, as I said, after they've they've been on the anabolic agents, then again they should be followed up with bisphosphonate for at least five years or denosumab for at least two years to consolidate bone uh, mass. And then uh, they do talk about the notion of bisphosphonate holidays and lower risk patients. And I think this is, this is the data that has been, has been pretty much uh, sussed, I think, in several clinical studies in the last 25 years, that if you don't have a very high risk or a high risk patient, they're probably going to get all the benefit from bisphosphonate in the first five years. They're probably not going to get any more benefit after five years. Uh, um, the, there's been several studies that have suggested that really the, the, that's the most benefit you get, and, and, and especially in, in low to moderate risk patients. Yes, their bone mass starts to decline again, but it never reaches the point that they were at the original five-year point. So um, that's something that we can certainly talk about, especially in, in we're thinking about de-prescribing in, in elders and stuff, someone who's been on a bisphosphonate for 10, 15 years and they're low to moderate risk, you know, do they really need to be on the bisphosphonate anymore? So that's something to think about. So let's talk a little bit about these newer agents. So abloperatide, now I, I remember when teraparatide came out and, you know, teraparatide is essentially a, 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 a modified version of parathyroid hormone. And so, so, you know, you know, and that stands to reason if I give you basically a modified version of parathyroid hormone, that's definitely going to cause, you know, osteoblast uh, formation and increased bone mass. The big problem with teraparatide was that it was unbelievably expensive, that it uh, caused a lot of infection or, infu- or injection site reactions. So people didn't like taking it um, and get to take, you had to get, inject yourself every day. So it just, it was just, it was, it was never a, a drug that really took off. Um, abloparatide is a derivative of teraparatide that is uh, much safer. That was the, always the other problem is that in rats uh, with teraparatide, there was uh, 
the, the risk of developing osteosarcoma, which I guess kind of makes sense if you're revving up bone-producing cells. There's always the risk of developing bone cancer. Um, um, and then the other big problem with teriparatide was they, they, got, they got a lot of hyper, hypercalcemia, as you, as you might imagine. Um, and so... Uh, 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 abloparatide uh, is, is, has been shown to not cause those uh, either problems. It still has a box warning for osteosarcoma from the FDA, but as of today or as of the last time I checked, there have been no reported uh, cases of osteosarcoma from abloparatide. Um, also, hypercalcemia is, is, is much less uh, uh, common, but it is possible, and, and the guidelines actually recommend that you monitor uh, uh, serum calciums every six months or so. Uh, its big problem is that it's $2,000 a month. And so it's, again, just unbelievably expensive, and the average patient's not going to be able to afford them. And again, it's also subcutaneously given as well. Um, and so again, that, that, that ends up being a real problem. Clinical studies have shown that, that uh, it, it uh, does significantly increase bone mass, and I think far more important, significantly decreases uh, both uh, hip fracture and vertebral fracture in patients with, with osteoporosis. So uh, it, it definitely works, um, and you definitely We'll see an increase in bone mass. You'll actually see T scale T scores go up, um, which is which is pretty amazing. But again, due to its cost it, and the fact that it's given subcutaneously, again, it's not a drug that's going to be for everybody. Romosozumab um, again is an, is another interesting drug. It's a monoclonal antibody that's directed um, against a, a couple of target sites called uh, sclerocytin. And and what what these basic type what these uh, um, target sites do is they inhibit the differentiation of precursor cells in, and to mature bone forming um, uh, osteoblasts. So basically, it, it allows osteoblasts to form uh, more readily, and osteoblasts, of course, build bone. Uh, the original studies that got the drug approved in the, on the market showed a and 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 I read the studies and I was pretty impressed too that bone density rapidly improved, um, much higher than with the the uh, with abloparatide or really any other drug certainly this phosphonates so they saw and they saw and the uh, the guidelines actually quote this saying a dramatic and rapid increase in bone density again more importantly I think what do the clinical studies show and again the clinical studies show that it, it does protect against a variety of osteoporotic fractures so you get to see both clinical benefit and again this this dramatic improvement in in uh, uh, the 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 um, DEXA scores. Um, so it seems to be superior to other anabolic agents or bisphosphonates alone in decreasing fractures. And so again, it's, it, 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 a lot of people are excited about this drug. A lot of endocrinologists in particular are pretty excited about the drug. Um, but again, it, it's unbelievably expensive. It's $22,000 a year and it has to be given subcutaneously by the healthcare provider. There's also a boxed warning for increased risk of cardiovascular events. Um, and so I, it's not that I wouldn't use it in someone who has a history of cardiovascular events, but they did see a signal for, for in, increased MI in one of the studies that got the drug approved. So um, again, it's, it's certainly not a drug without baggage, um, but, but it, as it stands now, based on the early studies we have, it seems to be one of our most potent agents in, in, uh, in, in treating these patients and in increasing bone mass and, and uh, uh, decreasing risk of fracture. So you know, if, if, it was, if it was 10 bucks a month and we didn't have the cardiovascular risk, everybody would probably be on it. But, but the, 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 the fact matter is, is that we're really going to be very selective in the patients we choose to be on these on these anabolic agents. But again, now we have this very high risk category, the guidelines say, and and these should be preferentially selected in those patients. Now, of course, as with all things, will payers listen to these guidelines? 
you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, uh, I, you know, the, the question will be, you know, what will they allow as far as, as far as, uh, uh, the, the criteria for being treated with these medications. And if you are especially pharmacists out there, will probably be the ones who end up dispensing these medications. Cause again, the average, the average pharmacy will probably not be dispensing many of these, of these, uh, anabolic drugs. Um, and I think being aware of the side effect profile and, and, and again, they're relatively new medications. So we, the, the book certainly hasn't been written about them. Are, are there some long-term adverse effects where you're just currently not aware of and, and, and see where we go from there. So again, the big, big changes in the, in the osteoporosis, uh, uh, guidelines is this, you know, reiteration of using fracs, making sure your patients are on plenty of vitamin D that for most patients, you know, uh, bisphosphonates are fine. And in fact, five years of bisphosphonates are fine for most patients. But if you have a patient in the very high risk category, um, they should at least be considered to receive anabolic agents before they receive uh, anti-resorptive agents um, for that. So, you know, I think for the pharmacist listening, you know, you know you're probably not going to be recommending any super duper expensive medications, but I think we can do a good job of screening patients for osteoporosis. Um, you know, whether or not you use the, you know, the machines that help measure heel bone density because that, that's always kind of been plus minus how, how effective those are. Um, I, I think that we can have, you know, we can identify patients in our in our pharmacies who are either known to have osteoporosis or at high risk and, and at least ask them some questions about are they getting enough vitamin D, you know, what are their doctors saying about it, even maybe just putting the hint in in, in their mind about, you know, maybe the next time you're seeing your, your primary care doctor say, you know, gee, you know, what do you think about my, about my, my bone health? Do you think that 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 things are going okay? Again, this is a this is a disease state that that even though it, it, it's primarily taken care of by primary care physicians, it will it sometimes falls to the bottom of the list just because patients just have so many other things going on. Physicians have limited time to to see patients and, and talk to patients, and so I think we can do a good job of using the FRAC scoring system, assessing our patients, and then once they're on these medications, assessing them for adverse effects. So we'll kind of wrap up talking about uh, uh, the these new ACE guidelines. Just a second, but first a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. So osteoporosis um, needs to be in our in our sites, and I think ambulatory care uh, uh, clinicians, including ambulatory care pharmacists, are, are good at doing this. Um, I think uh, as a, as an inpatient pharmacist, obviously we don't do DEXs in the hospital and things like that. But that doesn't mean that I can't be aware of, of of these of these issues. And certainly we see plenty of patients in my world who were admitted to the hospital for osteoporotic fractures, particularly uh, vertebral fractures, and they can be very painful. And and I've often, over, over my career, you know, you know, said to my my physicians, well, you know, or, so we are going to start something, right? Because once they've had an osteoporotic fracture, you know, we don't have to do a DEXA anymore, really. At that point, you can say they definitely have osteoporosis, and we really should start treatment to 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 uh, to, uh, to prevent further fractures. I think what these guidelines do is 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 they highlight the fact that we have two new medications. They seem to be quite potent. They work by a, a different a different uh, uh, way to approach osteoporosis than that they actually 
actually help build bone, but um, they're obviously not going to be for any everybody. They're not going to be for most patients. They're going to be for select patients that are considered very high risk. And then the question comes, what about the safety? What about the cost? What about the inconvenience of giving them subcutaneously are all things that we're going to have to do. So, so that does it for this uh, episode of uh, Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Again, please uh, go to where you listen to your podcasts, uh, uh, hit the like button, spread the word to your friends. Uh, also, again, another shameless plug, I do do electronic music under the name Prophet of Jupiter. That's actually the music you hear that starts and ends this podcast. And I do have a new EP that drops 925, and it's pretty much similar to electronic music. So go check me out wherever uh, you uh, listen to your music and see if you like it. Uh, so that ought to wrap it up. We'll see you next week. Remember that uh, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you.